the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. I'd like to welcome those of you who are joining us on this podcast, uh, Let Us Reason. Today's topic is going to be a fascinating one. In fact, it is one of those special podcasts where we have it also live streams on YouTube and on Facebook. And it will be two parts as before. And the topic that myself and my guest Joel Richardson will be dealing with has to do with his new book that uh, will be coming out concerning the return of Christ. Joel I cannot really find words to describe how exciting it is to have you here in studio, brother. I mean, I'm so blessed to have known you and uh, so blessed to do this with you. It's been a lot now, of fun. Now, it's exciting also that uh, there is a new book coming out. What is the name of the book? It's actually already out. It's out already. Congratulations. Out already. Yes. Yep. Just got it in the warehouse. So it's called Sinai to Zion, okay. the untold story of the triumphant return of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So uh, why don't you, in the first part of this, uh, you know, live stream and the second part, um, walk us through uh, the, the message of this book and obviously the scripture that is affiliated with it. Sure. Well, it's a heavy book. Um, I, unfortunately, I set out to write the shortest, uh, most easy book to digest. And unfortunately, I wrote the longest book that I've ever written. Uh, but I really do feel as though it's the best book that I've written. Um, this is now my ninth book, I think. Um, but I break the book up into three different parts, and the first part of the book is where I'm essentially dealing with the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, and the purpose of this portion of the book is to demonstrate that the covenant at Mount Sinai is clearly intended to be understood. It was understood by the Bible, by the prophets, by Jesus, by the apostles as a wedding or a betrothal ceremony. Are we talking about the uh, Mosaic Covenant here? The Mosaic yeah. Covenant. Right. Mosaic Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, the Covenant at That's Mount right. Sinai. Right. So it was a betrothal ceremony where God pledged himself as the husband of Israel and Israel as the bride um, of the God of Israel. And that kind of flies in the face uh, often of Christian theology, interestingly, because Christians are quick to say, we're the bride of Christ. They're not. They were rejected. Um, but biblically, that doesn't really fly. They are the original bride, and we're part of a program. We are grafted into a program. Uh, we're just as important. We're just as uh, relevant and loved uh, by God. But we have to understand the program as it is laid out in the Scripture. So I deal with the covenant, and it's a beautiful love story. It really is. But it helps frame uh, theological concepts, very important theological concepts and events that come later in the Bible. Right. So I want to just uh, help uh, people here understand, when we're talking about covenant, folks, we're talking about a relationship between two parties. Some covenants 
are unconditional, like the Abrahamic covenant, for instance. This particular covenant that Joe is talking about is a conditional covenant. Again, I like the, the, the way he illustrated as a marriage covenant. There is a condition here, which is, you know, honoring uh, that marriage, loyalty, if you wish, and so on and so forth. So please uh, think of it this way, folks. So keep going, brother. And that's a very important point, because, as you said, the Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral promise from God to Abraham. He's going to accomplish this. There's no ifs. If you do this, then I'll do No, the Lord just says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you and your descendants this piece of land. And ultimately, they will inherit it through the descendant. I'm going to give to you and your seeds this land through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm-hmm. But it will only be inherited through the ultimate seed. Okay, and same thing with the Davidic covenant. On your throne, someone's going to come forth from you. One of your descendants will come from you, and he will rule on your throne forever. It's a unilateral promise. The uh, Mosaic Covenant, on the other hand, is a bilateral, two-party agreement, and it's conditional. So God says, if you obey me, if you obey all my commands, if you're careful to observe these things, then you'll be blessed. And he, he lays out the blessings of the covenant. So, you know, your crops will be blessed. You'll have peace with your neighbors. You'll have security. And ultimately, at the center of it all is this. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. On the other hand, you have what is often referred to, what are often referred to as the curses of the covenant. Um, I like to better refer to them as the chastisements of the covenant. We think of curses more, um, I think, in terms of something that a witch, you know, a witch curses somebody, and it's, it's kind of not the best usage in modern English. It's the chastisements. The Lord says, if you don't obey me, then here's what's going to happen. And he lays out what is essentially a chastisement cycle. It's a cycle of events that leads to, interestingly, their restoration. But it begins with increasing calamities, national calamities. Eventually, things get worse to where they, it's, he lays it out. He says, you will be invaded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most of you will be killed. And you'll be exiled to the Gentiles. Will you, you'll live. There will be very few of you left. But after a while, you'll repent, and I'll bring you back to the land. And that's a, it's a painful, horrible thing. But if you want to look at something that is an evidence, a proof of God, you look at the history of Israel. This has happened in two complete cycles with the Babylonian and the Roman uh, expulsion from the land, and they've returned to the land. And it's happened a couple, I'll say half a times, with the Assyrian invasion of the northern tribes, as well as uh, under Antiochus Epiphanes, where a vast number were killed and a vast number were exiled. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, two complete cycles. That's unheard of. No nation in the history of the world has ever largely been wiped out, exiled and dispersed, and then brought back. And yet, that is exactly what was predicted thousands of years ago in Torah. So it's, that's a profound proof of, of the, again, the, the, the rea- reliability of the scriptures, of the biblical testimony. And here's an interesting thing, by the way, when it comes to uh, the covenant between Yahweh and, and people. Um, usually, there are stipulations, but uh, when it's conditional... But what's so amazing is that uh, scholars have observed that God starts with blessings before the so-called cursings or, you know, basically ramifications or breaking up. But then there is hope. Mm-hmm. There's always hope interjected in there. Yeah. And interestingly, though, although it is a bilateral agreement, at the center of it, at the center of the Mosaic Covenant, there still is this underlying um, uh, promise 
The, the, the Abrahamic covenant is sort of embedded into the Mosaic. So basically the Lord says, if you disobey me, most of you will get wiped out, but I won't completely wipe you out because I will remember my promise That's to right. Abraham and I will ultimately restore a remnant. Okay, so the second part of the book is where I deal with the culmination of the story of redemption, of which Israel is at the center. Much of the church today says that because the first century Israel rejected Jesus, they have been permanently rejected. But that's not the case at all. Paul makes it very clear. They were hardened partially and temporarily until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. But God's original promised plan to be their God, they will be his people, I will be your God, you will be my people, that is still intact. And so the story is not complete until all of Israel is worshiping the God of Israel. And so part two deals with this restoration of Israel. And what I show is the way the prophets frame it is the restoration of Israel is the second exodus. The first exodus is a prototype and a pattern. Their ultimate restoration is the greater or ultimate exodus, and it culminates with a marriage ceremony. Mm-hmm. And so, again, as Gentiles, if we're not, if we're not children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you know, children of Israel, we get grafted into this, but we maintain our Gentile identity. Israel inherits the land according to the covenants. We inherit the world according to... You know, the original promises, the division of the nations in Genesis and so forth. But it's in part three of the book that I get to the return of Jesus. And that is, to be honest, I wrote the whole book just to get to part three. That's the part that I'm most excited about. And it's the most revolutionary um, portion of the book. I think it's the most revolutionary thing that I've ever written. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, again, I want to thank those of you who are joining us here. Uh, Philippians 2.10, thank you so much for your super chat. And we agree with you, brother. Amen to what you stated. Uh, Folks, uh, you know, you've heard that we are talking today uh, to our friend, uh, author, uh, you know, amazing uh, researcher, Joel Richardson, as he uh, basically uh, expound or unpack for us his newest book. Again, the title of the book, brother? Sinai to Zion. Sinai to Zion. To Zion, and I encourage all of you. It's been published. That's what uh, he just told us. Uh, please go and and buy it. Where can they find it? By the way, Amazon or other places. Okay, so you can get the Kindle on Amazon, but if you want the hardcover, it's only available through the store on my website, joelstrumpet.com. But let me just say this for everyone out there: the PDF file is free on my website under free resources. So if you just want to read it. It's there for everyone. If you want a nice hardcover in your hands, you can buy it through the store on joelstrumpet.com. Wonderful. And we have all of these links for you here. And we want to encourage you folks to ask the right questions related to this. Now, was something intriguing to me here is that you mentioned Sinai to Zion. And how does this uh, Sinai fit within the context that we talked about so far that it is possible that Sinai actually is in Arabia? Okay, so the real Mount Sinai is in the south. It's in Arabia. And in part three of the book, what I actually show, and this is the revolutionary thing, and it sounds novel at first until you see the abundance of evidence throughout the scriptures, is the return of Jesus is framed throughout the scriptures as the second or the greater exodus. And Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the prophet greater than Moses. And so what the Bible actually teaches is that when Jesus returns, it's not just a simple event. It's not just a wave of a magic wand and everything is corrected. That he actually comes back 
and he returns not to Jerusalem initially. He makes his way to Jerusalem. He makes his way to Zion, but he doesn't begin there. He actually begins in the south and essentially retraces the pattern of the Exodus, the path of the Exodus, and he makes his way through Saudi Arabia. He makes his way through Sinai, and he marches up in a royal procession, a royal march through the desert as the greater Moses, as the as Yahweh God Almighty in the flesh, marching from Sinai up to Zion as he sets his people free, delivers the prisoners, the outcasts of Israel, those that have fled into the desert, those that are prisoners of war. He sets them free. The scriptures talk about him pouring out the wrath of God as he marches and proceeds with this beautiful royal procession marching up to Zion where he is ultimately enthroned as the son of David on the throne of his father. Excellent, man. Uh, exciting stuff. Uh, Riaz Qureshi, thank you so much, brother, for uh, your super chat. So why did you call it the Exodus again? I mean, some, some people are saying this is new, uh, you know, sound new to them. Okay, so let me, let me back up. And this will be helpful, um, I think, for everyone. Okay, so in terms of the development of messianic prophecy in the scripture. Everything begins, most Christians who are theologically astute, they understand that everything begins with Genesis 3.15. This is often called by theologians the Mm Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. This is the Lord's first hint of the coming of the Messiah. And so the fall has taken place. The Lord makes this declaration to the serpent. He says, I'm going to put enmity, conflict between you and the woman between your seed and her seed, between your offspring and her offspring. And then he introduces the mysterious he. He is going to crush your head, Satan. And so you have this promise. We don't know much about the Messiah at the forefront. We just know that he's the crushing one. He's the skull crusher. Someday someone is coming who's going to crush the serpent. And inferred in that declaration is that he's not just going to kill the serpent. He's going to undo the effects of what happened through the fall, through the deception that the serpent brought. Now, as you move forward in the scriptures... Later, you have this same concept of the crushing one. You see it in Numbers 24 with the prophecies of Balaam, where Balaam the prophet makes it clear that the crushing one is also a king that's going to rise up out of Israel. And so very early on, back in the Torah, the Messiah, he's not even called the Messiah yet, he's revealed to be a king of Israel and the crushing one. He is a warrior, but he's the seed of Eve. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the seed of David. It narrows down and it sort of tells us the family line through which this one is going to come. But he's going to be the seed of humans. He's going to be a human. Okay? So later in Psalm 2, Psalm 110, we see these clear messianic psalms. There's a development of this thought. But the Jews of this time who are studying the scriptures, peering into these things, waiting for these things, they understood that he was going to be a man. Mm-hmm. Okay, However, and this is what I deal with in the book, there is a parallel series of traditions, a parallel series of prophecies throughout the Bible that don't speak of someone who's coming who will be born of a woman. They speak of God, Yahweh, coming from heaven to save his people. And these are what I call the desert prophecies. Sometimes scholars call them the wilderness traditions. And the most significant ones, you've got Deuteronomy 33, 
Judges 5, Psalm 68, Habakkuk 3, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 63. There's a whole bunch of them. Uh, Zechariah 9. And they're all of these prophecies that speak of God Almighty coming from heaven to save us. Now, how does that work? Who's going to save us? Is the Messiah coming to save us or is God himself? Well, it's not until, it's not until, it's not clear until Daniel 7. Daniel, so you're thinking about the the, the Jewish thoughts at that time, how they're processing all of this. Yeah, as the Lord is revealing these things and unfolding them, it's not until Daniel chapter 7 that Daniel the prophet, again, a much later prophet, he sees a vision of someone like a son of man. He's, He's in the form of a human, but he's coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that's an important motif that is found throughout the desert prophecies. It's found first in Deuteronomy 33, where it says, There is none like the God of Jeshurun. Jeshurun's another name for Israel. It's a pet name. Who rides across the heavens to save you, who rides upon the clouds to come to your aid. And so when you see this son of man in Daniel 7, he's coming on the clouds of heaven. It's understood. No one rides on the clouds other than Yahweh. Exactly. But he's in an anthropomorphic form. He's in the form That's of right. a man. That's right. Suddenly, these two threads, the threads concerning someone who's going to be born of a woman, and then these other threads concerning God who's coming back to save us are interwoven. And it's the New Testament that finally and perfectly interweaves all of this beautiful tapestry. And so in this, we have hints of the fact that the coming of the Messiah, there'll be two comings. He has to be born first and then come from heaven. There's actually two comings. And we have some powerful hints concerning the nature of the Trinity and the plurality of the Godhead. Um, But it's once we see that these particular prophets, we often miss them because we go, well, that's talking about God. And you go, but the New Testament writers, whenever they come to Old Testament texts that portray Yahweh God Almighty coming from heaven to save his people with his angels Mm -hmm. in anthropomorphic form. He's marching, he has hands, he's shooting out lightning out of it, all of these things. Uh, it literally describes him shooting lightning out of his hands. Yeah. The New Testament always interprets those as referring to Jesus and the return of Jesus. And so this is a profound, this is simple, it's very simple, but it's a profound theological point. And uh, once you look at those prophecies and you realize these aren't just poetic Um, They're not just poetic, flamboyant, exaggerated descriptions of what happened at Sinai. They're actually prophecies of the return of Jesus. Then, um, in terms of what we have, the material to draw from to understand the return of Jesus, it's not just a few statements in the New Testament and Revelation 19. We have massive prophecies throughout the Old Testament that describe his return in beautiful textured detail. And, uh, and the story comes alive, and it's a rich, textured story. Amen, amen. Fascinating stuff. Again, thank you, everyone, for being here. Please, uh, uh, you know, shoot uh, some questions uh, our way uh, regarding this topic or even the topic that we talked about earlier related to the location of Mount Sinai in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, to those of uh, you who are listening to this podcast, uh, we have about six minutes, give or take, before this podcast is over. We are talking to, um, I would, in my book, a renowned author, uh, you know, a teacher of the Bible and especially prophecy in the Bible, 
and uh, uh, you know someone who has really investigated the Word of God at a deeper level. I've heard him teach a couple of times. I was fascinated by how he did his exegesis uh, supported from the Scripture. Uh, Joel Richardson, that's his name, and we encourage you, of course, to go to his website, uh, joelstrumpet.com, where you can find uh, his new book, uh, from Sinai to Zion, the one that we are uh, basically unpacking right now, but he also have other publications. And, uh, you know, we encourage you really to buy the book. That's uh, your way to support him, even though he did mention that there is a free PDF copy of his publications. I hope that you would consider at least uh, to partner with his ministry and give even a little uh, towards that. Uh, so in the remaining a few minutes, brother, uh, before, uh, you know, we wrap up this part, at least, um, what else you would like for people to know about this book? Because I want you to unpack it at a deeper level in part two. Yeah, we'll jump into it some more. Um, just before I was done, just before I was ready to send it to the printers, I added an appendix. So I went camping uh, with a good friend. He's one of these brothers that you just love to dig into the scriptures with, and he's always digging, and we're always having rich conversations. So we went camping together out in Colorado. And around the fire, he goes, he says, I think I figured out what the sign of the Son of Man is. And I thought, this sounds like one of the weird emails I get, you know. I think I figured out some eternal mystery. And as he unpacked what he was trying to explain, I said, bro, this is so profound. And I said, you need to write a book about it. He said, well, this is fascinating, but it's not enough to write a whole book about. He said, would you please include this uh, in your book? He said, it would be perfect. And I said, okay, I'll acknowledge you and everything. But I added this final, final appendix where we unpack the sign of the Son of Man, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. And it actually is the cherry on top of what I already thought was a powerful book. So we could actually, uh, later, I think we'll maybe do a whole program on that. Yeah, that's so cool. And we still have a few minutes left. Uh, what really led you to write in it, brother, this book, and why this particular topic? So, you know, as you know, I've written quite a lot about the, the end times and the return of Jesus and this type of thing. Um, but it was through my whole experience of going to Saudi Arabia and going to the real Mount Sinai and just... Yeah, I felt like I was glowing for a few months. I mean, it was just, I have been to the mountain of God. And so as a result of that, my own journey, my own journey with the Lord, he had me just parked in the book of Exodus. Of course, I've read the Exodus. I've read, I've studied Exodus. But I mean, I was just parked there for a year. And as I was peering into the scriptures, um, I began sort of seeing these things open up. And once the pieces clicked, and again, I'm not presenting this as some, you know, profound revelation that no one else knows, but because it's clear, it's really clear. Um, but once it clicked, I just said, oh my gosh, this is, you know, we all have moments like this when we're studying the scriptures and you get this aha moment and you just feel like, man, the Lord just invigorated my spirit. And that's how I felt. And I just said, I need to share this with everyone else. Cause if I'm this excited, they're going to be excited too. Amen. Amen, brother. We can't wait for the second part, of course. Uh, we have about uh, two minutes or so left, folks, for this podcast, Let Us Reason. Of course, I want to thank all of you uh, who have been, um, you know, 
tracking with us. Uh, thank you for joining us the, the first time around, a couple of hours ago, and thank you for joining us right now. Of course, if you are watching this live stream, please, uh, uh, you know, I want you to realize that in about two minutes from now, we're going to wrap up the first part of the podcast because this is part of my radio show also let us reason we're going to take about a minute give or take in between and then we'll jump into part two and we'll go for another 25 minutes but then after the part two is over uh, we'll stick around uh, for a little bit uh, longer in case you have any additional questions so i encourage all of you of course to uh, think of questions related to this particular topic about the second coming of christ or even the topic of mount sinai uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, which we covered in the previous, um, you know, pot, uh, podcast slash, you know, uh, live stream, because it was uh, part of a video series that we have recorded already. I think we did, uh, you know, at least a dozen uh, videos on that topic uh, called uh, basically Mount Sinai in Arabia. It's a brand new uh, video series that will be coming out hopefully soon. Thank you again for those of you uh, who are partners with the ministry through Patreon, uh, who give through PayPal, and we encourage others uh, to consider becoming uh, Patreon, uh, Patreon uh, uh, patrons, basically, or partners. Uh, I have to, full disclosure, I'm looking for more partners. Hopefully, uh, we're looking for at least 100 more uh, Patreon partners. I think we have it on the screen right now to, to see if you can uh, join us. Uh, and really, you can give as little as $1, as much as the Lord put in your heart. We're not really giving you specific amounts, but the more partners we have, the more we are able to raise funding to do these kind of videos and help us more and more to become independent than to go and seek and ask, you know, uh, larger foundations and things like that, because sometimes they have a lot of people who are requesting things, too, and we want to respectful for that. With that in mind, of course, we want to thank you for um, joining us uh, uh, right now on this podcast. Uh, remember, of course, to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Zero International. And uh, hopefully you can catch us again in the next podcast as we continue with our discussion about this fascinating book uh, by Joel Richardson called From Sinai to Zion. Until we meet again next time, have a blessed day. <music>